Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Bonson. Uh, He's an economist and the author of a new book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, David. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Just give us your background a little bit and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I've been working on Wall Street for over 20 years now. Uh, For many years, was a managing director at Morgan Stanley and left seven years ago to start my own firm, the Bonson Group, a private wealth management firm. We manage $3.5 billion of client capital and in my uh, independence and, and separation from Morgan Stanley, I'm now free to write and say things that might take on a bit more of an economic and sometimes even political edge. And so I uh, attempt to put out content and thought leadership and content into the universe as often as I can. And that's what the new book is about. So let's, what is the basic idea? We're going to get into more details of it, but what is the basic idea? People think there is a free lunch and you say there isn't one. What, what is that dichotomy? Well, I think it's uh, borrowing from Milton Friedman's famous line of, about there being no free lunch. And, and it's not so much that I think people consciously believe I can have something for free. It's that most bad economics comes down to the subconscious belief that there's a free lunch. In other words, failure to remember trade-offs, that in economics you're dealing with scarce resources, so therefore every time you are dealing with scarcity, you have to make a decision, a trade-off. Most public policy, and in fact many people's personal economic understandings often forget the law of trade-offs, which we uh, euphemistically refer to as there being no free lunch. So let's take it to the current situation. So President Biden, for example, has pushed through the hard infrastructure bill and made that happen. So that's spending one and a half trillion dollars, whatever it is. And now he wants the Build Back Better program, which is two trillion or thereabouts in soft infrastructure, social spending programs. Is that, would that create an illusion that people are getting a free lunch? Is that part of your objection to it? Well, it would, although I'm not sure that many of the progressives who support the legislation would even deny that there's a cost. They would just simply claim that the cost was worth it. Or as um, President Obama famously said, he's the first Democrat in my lifetime to say when uh, uh, approached with the fact that cutting capital gain taxes had in the past increased revenue, he said, yes, but sometimes you have to do something because it's fair. So in this case, um, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, maybe it does cost, we just don't care. Now, admittedly, President Biden's actually not even done that. He was pretending that the Build Back Better bill was revenue neutral. And I think that's one of the reasons it died and public support for it was so low, which gave cover to moderate Democrats to oppose it, is because most people intuitively don't think you can wave a wand and get three and a half trillion dollars out of nowhere. So you're saying that uh, he was saying it was, as you say, revenue neutral that the uh, tax expenditures with, with the tax income coming from it would cover these various expenditures. You think it wouldn't work out that way. Is that right? Well, first of all, that's still not free. Someone had to pay for that. And so I guess it depends on what the meaning of the word free is. Right. I mean, the notion that tax increases are free uh, is itself a bit mathematically challenged that. And, and yet in this case, even that wasn't true which is why Joe Manchin had covered to oppose it. It was nowhere near paid for. They were assuming some astronomical amount of money they were going to find by uh, greater uh, resources at the IRS. They were also um, charging the plan for a couple years of social programs, but then in reality were assuming that the benefits of the programs were lost 10 years or longer. And so that's what Joe Manchin just said, stop with these accounting gimmicks and eventually refuse to support the bill. Um, But I would come back to that point on the tax cuts or tax increases. If you take money out of the private economy uh, to fund something, that's not revenue neutral. 
okay, if I buy a television set with money I earned, it still cost me money. Now, it was a cost I may have chosen to make. I may have said, I'd rather have this new TV than have the $1,000 sitting in my checking account, and I get to do my own internal cost-benefits analysis and make a decision. But you can't say that it was free just because you paid for it. And that's what Joe Biden was saying, President Biden was saying about Build Back Better, that because they were going to be raising taxes to pay for some of it, that it was free. It's a, a really bizarre use of English vocabulary. So the progressives, like Elizabeth Warren or AOC, would say, all we're trying to do is get these wealthy individuals and huge corporations to pay their fair shares, the way they put it, that all these companies are paying no taxes at all, the wealthy get away with murder, we just want them to pay their fair share. What is wrong with that? Well, if it were true that there were wealthy and corporations paying no taxes, I think most people would have a problem with that. I personally am opposed to the idea of a corporate tax at all. I believe all a corporation being taxed does is tax the customers of that corporation and the laborers of that corporation uh, through either higher prices or lower wages or both. But regardless, we have a corporate tax in this country. We have for a long time, um, but it isn't zero. And to the extent that they say, well, there's people not paying enough, it's because Congress has provided write-offs. So when green energy companies that otherwise would make money but then have large capital expenditures and they get to deduct those, she's now saying, oh, well, there's people that are not paying taxes. But deductions are part of the tax code that Congress wrote. So if they don't want deductions, they can get rid of them, but they'll never do that. So at the end of the day, um, wealthy people not paying taxes is the biggest lie. And I think more and more people are on to it. Um, I still think a lot of Americans don't like wealthy people or don't mind them paying high taxes. There's a lot of class envy and covetousness that goes into that. But uh, mathematically, there's no one who believes that wealthy people are not paying taxes. High earners pay an astronomical amount of tax and, in fact, the top 1% of people in our country pay virtually half the taxes in the entire country. So how can Elizabeth Warren say that they're not paying their fair share? And she, in fact, wanted a wealth tax of, I guess it was 2% a year, adding up people's wealth at the end of each year, and then paying just a mere 2% of that. What would be wrong with that? Well, I wrote a whole chapter about the wealth tax in, in my book about Elizabeth Warren, and her candidacy blew up uh, shortly after the book came out. So those topics didn't, didn't ever become as relevant as uh, perhaps they could have been. Um, the wealth tax does sound good to people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. It's been tried in uh, 15 European countries and, and gotten rid of. It doesn't raise revenue. Um, it is not constitutional in our own country, as they would surely find out if they ever tried to pass one. Um, but the fact of the matter is that uh, it's totally unfeasible uh, and it gives awful incentives around capital allocation and and trying to value uh, illiquid. It's very easy. It's very easy to figure out what um, uh, Microsoft stock is worth every year. It's not so easy to figure out what a family-owned business of ten car washes is worth. And so, illiquid assets would become impossible to value. Yeah. The the other thing, some rich people like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates have said. It's unfair that my secretary pays a higher capital, uh, higher income tax rate than I pay on capital gains, um, and you know they're, they're, they they want to pay more to some extent. What what is the argument to keep capital gains differential as wide as it is? Yeah, well, first of all, they've never said that because they're paying more on capital gains. They've said because they're paying more. Period. That the rate is higher, and and of course it's just factually inaccurate. But the major issue, and of course they're both aware of this. Um, is that their money was already taxed at the highest income rate, and then the second time around, the capital gains on that money is taxed at a lower rate. So they're uh, totally disingenuously avoiding the fact that we're referring to their second tax on the same income and comparing that to the first tax of the secretary. But I don't know very many secretaries that are in an income bracket that is higher than 23.8% of federal. And that's what uh, Gates and Buffett pay in capital gain tax. So their math and facts are always wrong, but it's rhetorically somewhat interesting, except for the fact that it ignores the fact that capital gain is a tax 
on money that was already taxed at income level. So really, you're talking about a 50-something percent tax when you include the two together. It's totally disingenuous. So I assume you are a believer in supply-side economics and Arthur Laffer, that when you lower tax rates, you end up collecting more revenue. What has been the recent example? So when we had the 2017 tax cut, for example, did that produce more revenue and was it revenue positive? Yes. Now, I, I'm a very much a supply-side economic uh, economist and very uh, supportive of Art Laffer's beliefs, but I do think it's important to qualify that it's not to say that it always does. It's to say that there is a curve at which um, a certain rate can produce greater income and a certain rate can produce lower income. And on the curve uh, throughout history, we've seen countless times of lowering income rates and lowering capital gain rates creating more revenue to Treasury. In the case of the Trump tax cuts of late 17, they barely touched marginal income rates, but what they did touch is corporate tax rates, and you had the greatest amount of corporate tax revenue in history in 2018 and 2019, both despite the lower um, tax rate. Now, 2020 obviously was the COVID year, and you have awful lot of differences there, but in the immediate aftermath, you raised revenue to Treasury with a lower tax rate on corporate or business income, classic case of supply side uh, laws working. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Bonson. Uh, he is an economist. Uh, he has written a book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You can find out more at his website, NoFreeLunchEconomics.com. We'll be back after this. For the last two weeks, I've been taking Athletic Greens, which is a delicious multivitamin powder that has given me new energy and boosted my immune system. Every morning, I mix the powder in 12 ounces of water into a plastic container that they provided. Shake it up and drink it. It's been, it has a kind of a mild tropical taste that I look forward to every day. So what's in this stuff? Athletic Greens Powder has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. Their special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, and slows down the aging process. It also helps you sleep better and absorb nutrients from foods into your bloodstream more efficiently. Athletic Greens is a lifestyle-friendly, whether your diet is keto, paleo, gluten-free, or dairy-free. It's very natural and has only one gram of sugar and no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. Athletic Greens is based on the latest science, is tested extensively, and is constantly being tweaked and improved. It costs less than $3 a day. You will spend less than that on all the supplements and multivitamins you're already maybe taking. Think of it as investing in your health so you don't have to spend money on therapies to recover from bad health habits. It has thousands of five-star reviews and is recommended by many professional athletes. Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company which donates some of the proceeds of its sales to organizations to get millions of nutritious meals to kids in need all over the world. Right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially since we're in the cold and flu season. It's just one scoop of Athletic Greens powder in a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for many different pills or multivitamins to look out for your health. To make it easy to get started, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs in your first purchase. All you need to do is to go to athleticgreens.com slash moneyanswers. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash moneyanswers to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. 
Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Bonson. He is the author of a book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. The website to find out more is nofreelunchexonomics.com. Welcome back to the show, David. My pleasure to be with you. So let's talk about the economic situation now. We've had the Fed Reserve has been pouring money into the economy for quite a few years to offset the the downward impact of the pandemic. Now they shifted it and they said they're going to start raising interest rates um, this year, maybe three or four times. Uh, Inflation has picked up a lot. Is this a predictable pattern or should they have started to move interest rates up earlier to stop inflation? Well, there's a couple uh, schools of thought here, and I want to share with you what I believe is the case, because I believe that they did uh, hold rates too low too long, and yet that belief has nothing to do with inflation. I do believe that the amount of quantitative easing of uh, basically buying trillions of dollars of bonds with money that doesn't exist um, and the very low interest rate creates a lot of problems in the economy. I think it is... Uh, excessively accommodative, and it it stimulates bad investment decisions and a bad allocation of capital. Um, But I don't think we can call it inflationary uh, when Japan's been doing it for 30 years and hasn't been able to create inflation if their life depended on it. And we did this extensively after the financial crisis, three rounds of quantitative easing, that lasted in total $4 trillion of bond buying and uh, in total length was over five years and they were unable to create inflation out of it. Uh, The 0% interest rate lasted about seven years. The reason I say I don't think it's inflationary per se is because what I think it misses is that excessive government spending is such a wildly deflationary problem. It takes future economic growth out of the system, puts downward pressure on those growth expectations. Now, why do I say that? Uh, Because I believe that uh, we look at the bond market for these answers. Long-dated bond yields are pricing in inflation better than any instrument ever known to man. And they continue to point to something less than 2% per year on the 10-year treasury. When the government stopped QE, excuse me, when the Fed stopped QE, 2016, 17, 18, uh, bond yields didn't move. And so I do believe these are bad policies. And I do believe they've created a lot of problems and they went on too long. 
but I just don't believe inflation is one of the consequences. I think our inflation we're dealing with now is entirely related to total incompetence in management of the supply chain and labor shortages and other sort of idiosyncratic issues that have wrecked havoc in our economy. Are those fixable? Are the supply chain problems fixable and the labor shortage fixable? Yes, they are, because they are all more or less uh, market mechanisms. There's incredible profit motive right now for the supply chain to be fixed. Companies have high prices with high margins to go deliver goods and services. And so to the extent you get equilibrium, once you have more goods and services, it brings prices down and then prices recalibrate and the margins recalibrate. And that's what a market is. So it's fixable, but it's not very simple. It isn't just a matter of someone saying, turn on the widget maker because we're making more money. You have China uh, ramifications. You have getting laborers to work. You have COVID restrictions. There's been a lot of extrinsic circumstances. And whether those things take three weeks, three months, six months, we believe the bulk of them will be fixed and start to put downward pressure on price growth. And as far as the labor shortage, we have roughly 11 million unfilled jobs, a lot of people quitting their jobs, the great resignation, as they call it. What is the solution to this huge labor shortage we have? Well, I think that the labor shortage, when you look at the number of unemployed, is about 4 million that say they're looking for a job. A big portion of the unfilled jobs has to do with uh, skill set, that we, we have a big mismatch of, of needed skills for the jobs that are open. That was a problem pre-COVID that just has gotten a lot worse. The bigger number to me that is very easy to isolate is the labor participation force that you've had now about one and a half million people, uh, close to two million, leave the workforce since COVID that have not come back in. And by that, I do not mean found a job. I mean, have left the workforce altogether. They both haven't found a job and they say they're not looking for one. That is to me the biggest problem. Um, and it was the first time that we, we were seeing a little improvement in this metric, 2017, 18, 19, not dramatically, but we did see the labor participation force start to move up. And then now out of the COVID moment, and I imagine some of that is policy decisions during COVID, we've definitely taken a hit. And the worst part to me is it's primarily in people over the age of 55 and under the age of 25. And I do not believe it's good for our society to have less young people working, building skills, building relationships, learning discipline. And I don't think it's good for people over 55 to be leaving the workforce altogether when they're still able-bodied and able-minded and, and able to produce and add experience and wisdom into the workforce. Uh, ultimately, that uh, I think it's society benefits when you have a stronger labor force. So what is the solution? Some people say immigration. If, we're not gonna, if these people are going to be leaving the workforce um, and not coming back, in many cases, the jobs that the baby boomers were doing for all these years, younger people don't want to be boat captains and meet and work in meatpacking plants and you know, things that baby boomers did that younger people, they want to design video games or something. What is the solution to jobs getting done when we don't have the people to do it? Ultimately, market mechanisms would solve a lot of that unless one believes that there's an infinite amount of video game making jobs to be done and that there isn't enough demand for meatpacking and ship captain type jobs that you refer to. But um, along the way, I am an uh, advocate of immigration solving some of those problems, but that's a very politically incorrect thing to say on the right these days. Um, and so I think supply-demand forces will have to play out, and in the meantime, I think prices will go higher. Um, but I don't think it's entirely solvable economically. I think a big part of the problem is cultural, and, and many cultural problems can't be fixed economically. Uh, we have to reprise work. We have to revalue the merit and morality of a work ethic. And I think that that's largely been lost. This is happening around the world as well, though, demographically. I mean, China has a very old population. Europe has a very old population with not enough young people. There. The birth rate, we're not replacing our population. So this is a worldwide phenomenon, the labor shortage, isn't it? 
Yes, but the difference is that the United States has been over 2.1 kids per household for quite some time. It's only post-financial crisis that we've seen our fertility rate dip below, get now into this 1.6, 1.7 level where um, you're not re-populating uh, you know, your society. And so I think that uh, Japan and China have been dealing with it for some time. Europe has been dealing with it for some time. And, and I think that the United States, it's a very unfortunate but more recent development. And we'll have to see in a post-COVID environment if some of those fertility factors come back on. So we were talking about the Fed and interest rates. Uh, so the Fed's going to raise interest rates you know, three or four times this year. Do you think that is the correct thing to be doing at this stage in the economic cycle where inflation's at 7% at the consumer level, we have 3.9% unemployment? They're saying... Unemployment's fine. Now we have to battle inflation by raising rates. Yeah, I think that the number one reason they need to do it is because they leave themselves no tools in their toolbox. If the Fed is to be the lender of last resort and is supposed to be there only for emergency measures, having emergency economic policy when you're not an emergency is the big problem. And, and unfortunately, both with the Fed and with the federal government, they do it all the time, is they, they take on measures that are sold to us as an emergency or crisis level, and then they don't seem to go away. And the next time you do have a crisis, you don't have much room to operate. Uh, if we were to have a major unexpected global recession, uh, what exactly would the Fed be able to do if they're already down at the zero bound in interest rates? But I will take the under on that idea that they're going to raise four times this year. I think they should, but I don't think they will. But I certainly think they'll say they're going to. And I think once they get to two or three, if at that point credit markets start to freeze up like they did in 2018, if the stock market starts to rebel a little bit, I think they'll chicken out. But by that point, I think you'll start seeing inflation dropping and they'll use the disinflation as their excuse to not move forward with much more aggressive rate hiking, but you can't really raise rates that aggressively when you still have $9 trillion on your balance sheet. The far more effective tool is for them to get a few trillion dollars of these bonds that were bought with fake money off their balance sheet, and we'll see how aggressive they are about doing that. So you mean selling bonds back into the marketplace instead of buying them? Uh, although it is technically not selling because they let the bonds mature and then they don't roll them over. So it is a form of tightening, but it's more passive than if they were actively selling. The whole time that President Trump was yelling at Chairman Powell in 2018 about quantitative tightening, they were never actually selling bonds, but they were um, stopping the reinvestment of bonds. So perhaps it's a bit too technical. Uh, I hope listeners don't think so, but it is a distinction I figured I should make. Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Bonson. He's an economist and author of a book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You can find out more at his website, nofreelunchecomics.com. We'll be back after this. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then bringing them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and much more, in state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, which is early. Our crowd is the fastest-growing venture capital investment community. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over a billion dollars in growing tech companies. 21 of the portfolio companies are unicorns, and many of our crowd's members have benefited from over 40 IPOs or sale exits of portfolio companies. Now you can invest in Bluetree, which could revolutionize the billion-dollar-plus total addressable market for food technology. Bluetree has developed a process to significantly reduce the sugar in any natural liquid, lowering health risks while retaining great taste. Bluetree has already signed a five-year, 100-million-liter contract with an industry leader. Invest today at our crowd. Invest in Bluetree at OURCROW.com slash answers. You can join our crowd for free at OURCROW.com slash answers. 
Join the fastest-growing venture capital investment community at rcrowd.com slash answers. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Bonson. He is the author of a book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. The website to find out more is nofreelunchecomics.com. Welcome back to the show, David. It's wonderful to be with you. So let's go into some of the economic truths that people should learn about. Your first chapter is what you call human flourishing. So what are some of the truths that people should understand about human flourishing? The fundamental truth is the reason why it was put as the first chapter is that that's what the aim of economics ought to be. And so I believe most modern economics makes the fatal mistakes they make because they believe there's some optimal place on a spreadsheet, that economics is is what they call econometric. It's this uh, mathematical wisdom that elite PhDs from MIT can come up with. And my view is that the primary reason we care about the social science of economics is for people to live more flourishing lives. And I include in that not merely optimal incomes and optimal material prosperity, but that there is a, a, a spiritual and personal and emotional well-being that we want and that it is not um, uh, satisfied by being a ward of the state, by having people give things to you. That much of the human flourishing we get out of economics is not merely when we are able to pay our bills by being productive, although that's a very economic concept, but it's the earned success that comes from achievement, from activity, from productivity. So human flourishing is a fuller definition of an economic goal than I think we often get. Yet so many younger people coming out of college these days are socialist or they think communism is not so bad and they complain about income inequality and uh, that seems to be the predominant view is that capitalism isn't isn't been delivering for them. What is the retort to that? I think it's why I wrote the book, because I believe that so many on the right are failing to make the argument in a time where progressivism and socialism is making a comeback. I want there to be a better argument, uh, and that that argument must come from the fact that we do not meet the needs of society by merely giving them things or by redistributing wealth, that there is a existential purpose in being productive, in having a job, in, in contributing 
to a community and that those things are all totally economic concepts that only free markets and free enterprise can protect. So I think socialism fails on the personal and emotional argument and obviously fails on the purely economic argument. You do not get enough development of goods and services and growth of GDP out of the poor incentive structure in socialism. But those of us who believe in free enterprise economics have not been making the argument that young people find satisfactory. And as you point out, a lot of them feel like capitalism has not been delivering. And I think they need to understand that what's not been delivering are brutally high home prices, excessive student debt, colleges that haven't prepared them. These are all a byproduct of government policy failure. So why would we want to turn to those who have caused the problems to come up with the remedies? What would you say to the arguments about income inequality, uh, not only here, but elsewhere in the world as well? China has a very big in- inequality gap as well. Um, is, is capitalism, there's something about capitalism that could make in- in- income inequality less as severe as it is today? Well, I think income inequality throughout history has always become a problem when there is declining economic growth. There's very few precedents for anybody caring about the gap between them and someone who's richer than them when they themselves are getting richer. But what has started happening in 2008 is that not just U.S., but global economic growth fell way below trend line. So we were averaging 3.1% real GDP growth per year for 60 years before uh, going up to the financial crisis. We have not had a single year at 3% since. And we've averaged just barely over half of that, about 1.7% real growth. I don't believe people care about income inequality as much as they care about an absolute standard of living. But to the extent that there are people out there who aren't in a Harvard faculty lounge worried about what they make versus what someone else makes, what I say is, who is to pick? Is it to be an anointed elite or is it to be market forces? the spontaneous order of prices being set in a free society. I find it very hard to believe that anybody finds the incompetents who run government, the totalitarians who are responsible for such great bloodshed last century, that these are people that we would look to to set prices as opposed to the free system uh, that a free enterprise economy affords us. So people, uh, the progressives would say, well, the, the, the model today is Scandinavia. We should all be like Denmark and Norway and Sweden that have equality. They don't have this big in- income inequality. You get free health care. The government takes care of you, and it's all good. What, what is the retort to that? Well, I do find it ironic that most of the progressives and leftists that look to Scandinavia as a model on things didn't seem to think that way throughout the COVID moment, but I'll put that on the shelf for now. Um, none of those countries are, are pure socialistic economies. They do all have a higher um, structure for healthcare spending. There's no question about that. Um, they do not have the um, same structure or setup of a society the United States has. It's a very homogenous culture. Uh, they obviously do not spend nearly what is uh, required of U.S. In, in military and defense spending, for example. Um, But they also do not have um, a socialistic economy whereby prices and wages are set by the government. There is still a profit motive in every one of the Scandinavian countries. So issue by issue, we can discuss what regulations we like and don't like and what taxes we like and don't like. But the notion of central planning around wages where people talk about income equality that doesn't exist in Scandinavia either. Where it existed was in Mao Zedong's Red China. Where it existed was in Stalin's uh, Soviet Russia. So I think the notion of uh, income inequality being dealt with by the benevolent hands of the state is something that history has not been kind to. I do believe that the U.S. has a very capital-intensive economy, which has led to extreme cases like Bezos and, and Musk and so forth. And if people want to be furious about how unbelievably wealthy those guys have been, I would simply question whether or not the being furious is because they have taken from others or or because uh, there is envy 
and, 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 and covetousness at play. Most objective observers would have to say that the mega riches that you see out of Tesla and Apple uh, have been heavily democratized, that there are thousands upon thousands of assembly line workers and secretaries and so forth that have participated in the great equity appreciation that has made risk takers like Musk and Bezos fabulously wealthy. So at the end of the day, it is never a matter of critiquing a system versus a nirvana. You have to come up with something else to compare it to. And what we can compare price setting that has created Tesla and Apple and, and so forth is the idea of a government that sets the level of absolute wealth and wages in society. And I think most people find that to be totalitarian and appalling. Some people would say that what China has done has been very successful in the last few decades. They brought a very poor country into tremendous wealth, the second and potentially first uh, you know, GDP country in the world. Uh, and they control all kinds of things over there, yet, yet they let entrepreneurial uh, spirits run kind of with the government's control. What's wrong with that model? Well, again, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about this. I think Milton Friedman was incredibly pressing it when he talked about economic freedom versus political freedom. Then I would add a third category of civic freedom. And I think that the idea that you can have some degree of economic freedom without political freedom is definitely clear. You cannot have political freedom without some degree of economic freedom. And so I think that what China has done is get um, a situation where there can be an increase in global economic output that the rest of the world has benefited from, has made China a serious player in productivity in the world stage, and yet by not improving in areas of human rights, religious liberty, um, and other basic freedoms that we would take for granted, you end up in a system that no American would tolerate for a moment. You know, CEOs that disappear for weeks at a time are told to do the bidding of the CCP um, and, and so forth. So is China's economic framework better than it was under Mao Zedong? Of course it is. It's incrementally moved a great deal, and the whole world is better off for that. But is China's economic model the be-all and end-all? Is it the final standard? Would we be content to live in a society that has quasi-economic freedom and no political freedom? Uh, in 1776, we fought a revolution over such a thing. Indeed. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Bonson. Uh, he is an economist. His latest book is called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. The website to find out more is nofreelunch.economics.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Bonson. He's the author of a book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You can find out more at his website, nofreelunchnomics.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Good to be back. So you have a chapter at the end of the book called Virtue and Discipline. Um, how does that uh, work into the economics that you're talking about here? You know, the founder of classical economics, Adam Smith, in the uh, late 18th century, 
wrote a book that really did change the world called The Wealth of Nations. We talk about it all the time about the pivotal role of self-interest and that this quote-unquote invisible hand in the market works whereby people working out of their own self-interest make a better life for them and their family in a market economy end up providing goods and services that work all in concert together, that everybody benefits as people are out uh, operating freely. And, and the book's a masterpiece, and the concept now we take for granted. It's so intuitively obvious uh, that when we go and buy steak, we're helping the restauranteur, but we bought the steak because we wanted it, not because we were thinking about helping him and his family. He wrote another book, though, called Theory of Moral Sentiments, and those two books are treated as two totally separate treatises, and I understand why, but it's my belief that the message, the underlying message of both books put together is the primary need as we now enter deeper into the 21st century, whereby we remind ourselves of the beauty of classical economics, of incentives, of free exchange, uh, of incentives mattering and how we go about conducting economic affairs, but that we also remember the sort of Edmund Burke uh, notion, I think Burke being America's greatest political philosopher, that there is a virtue and a discipline that is required in the public square for these things to optimally take hold. So it's what I call in the book an enlightened self-interest, whereby we not only want to see people operating in self-interest, having a good and healthy profit motive, we don't want to demonize profit like the left so often does, yet of course at the same time we want to vehemently uh, see a sort of moral education that we advocate for in the society that people um, have the discipline and the character to optimize the way in which uh, a free economy is allowed to operate. It's why I prefer the expression free and virtuous society. I want to juxtapose both of those two ideas together. How do you think the education system is getting people ready to do exactly that? I don't think that the public education system is doing a great job at it. I, I don't know that it could do a great job if they hold on to the belief that mankind is essentially soulless and is in fact just nothing more than a more intellectually elevated form of the animal species. Um, I believe you have to start with the belief in moral absolutes. And if we want people to act with a more morally enlightened self-interest, I think you have to have some restoration of the Judeo-Christian ethic in society. You also have a whole chapter on private property. Some people say that there's too much private property. This kind of goes into the whole income inequality situation. What is right and wrong about private property? Well, what is right about private property is it's a sin qua non. Without that, you can't have anything in a free society. You need private property for there to be prices. You need prices as signals of information that both producers and consumers use to make decisions. And out of that, you can do economic calculation, which allows risk takers, people to go create the goods and services that impact our quality of life. They can now make decisions that help grow the economy. So private property is the foundation of all of it. If there isn't private property, then there can't be risk taking. And if there isn't risk taking, there can't be economic growth. And no sane thinker can possibly disagree with anything I just said. So some would say that there's too much hype today and, and uh, some things are wildly overinflated, particularly cryptocurrencies and all the smaller cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin. And a lot of high-tech stocks and IPOs have been wildly overinflated because of all the money that was put out by the Fed Reserve. Is, is that your, and it's a big bubble, basically, is what they're saying. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think I probably would, although I don't think it's a, just a byproduct of the Fed uh, priming the pump. I think that gives a lot more liquidity in the system and helps uh, kind of facilitate bad decision-making. But I think that we are in a boom-bust cycle where uh, people get numb to the reality of risk. And especially when these things continue to go higher, it makes people feel that they're invincible, much like that person who, you know, first time at a craps table can't lose and they uh, have to find out the hard way that, in fact, sometimes you do roll seven. 
And, and I think that with things that are not able to be priced or valued, like crypto, Bitcoin, with a lot of speculative things like some of the small tech and cool tech and, and, and uh, you know, IPOs and SPACs and things like that, you, you really do, especially in an environment like this where everything's been doing so well for so long, it creates a kind of uh, behavioral tendency for people to misprice risk. It's not new. It's happened many times. Uh, we just experienced it with Florida condos in 2006 and with pets.com in 1999. So just in the last 20-something years, we've already seen two major booms of speculative assets that resulted in a couple major busts. And I, I doubt some of these things will end real well either. So what is your view of the cryptocurrency role in the economy? Some are saying that it really should supplant the dollar and that people are putting money into cryptocurrencies as an alternative even to gold because they're losing faith in the, in the currency. What is your view of cryptocurrencies? Um, I do not view it as a currency at all. I view it as a pyramid scheme that will not end well, but that I could go on for a long time. All pyramids can go on for a long time. Uh, if people are upset with the dollar for its lack of stability, lack of monetary authority, lack of fiscal responsibility, I can't imagine what they think about a currency that can go up or down 25% every time Elon Musk sends a tweet. So I do not buy into the idea that Bitcoin represents an alternative for a stable medium of exchange. Will the price keep going higher? Will more people keep bidding it up? It very well could. Um, it's been wildly volatile since it came on the stage. And I certainly believe in blockchain technology as having an incredible efficacy in the economy. But crypto as a currency with this much speculation and insanity going on, I would not, you would not want to count me as one of the believers. In the roughly two minutes we have left, why don't you kind of summarize what difference it would make in the economy if people adopted your views and it became the, the predominant view of the way we run uh, economics and the government? Uh, the number one thing that I believe would happen if I could wave a wand and see these things, none of which I invented, all of which I've borrowed from the economic masters of 300 plus years, number one thing that would happen is not merely we'd have a lower deficit or we'd have greater economic growth, although I'm sure we'd have both those things. I believe you'd have happier people. I believe you'd have a more fulfilled society, flourishing, as we talked about earlier, Jordan. I think you'd have people that would be functioning in an environment that is more suited to their God-given abilities, their capacity to be creative, to be innovative, and to be productive. Is this something we've done in the past? I mean, there was a time in American history that that, in fact, happened. Um, well, I, I think that we have never uh, optimized uh, all of the issues that I talk about in the book, but I also believe that some of the periods where we had the freest economy was pre-industrial revolution. And so, um, you know, we now have a chance to really see a greater satisfaction with the fruits of what a free enterprise has been able to create. And, and in fact, of course, you know, there's been certain periods in American history where we were making great progress. We've had wonderful economic growth. We've always had poor. We've always had disenfranchised. But what we can never do is say that the solution to poverty is to give people things. Uh, all poor people deserve the human dignity that comes from economics viewed as our capacity to be productive people. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been David Bunsen. He is the author of a book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You can find out more about his very provocative ideas at nofreelunchaconomics.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, David. Thanks so much for having me. Next week is another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.